Jesus uses the same metaphor, the same idea, the same image in two different sermons. I wonder if you got any emails about that. (laughs) He used the same image, the same metaphor, the same idea in two different sermons. The latter one we've just heard in Matthew 23 takes place during the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, just before his arrest and crucifixion. He's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey in the middle of Palm Sunday. And in the midst of the pomp and the circumstance of the holy city, in the middle of the religious industrial complex, Jesus has the audacity to declare. The teachers of the law, the the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy and cumbersome loads. They put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift one finger to move them. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said this about the pastors and the priests of his day. That's the second time Jesus has spoken like that. The first time was 12 chapters earlier. He uses the same image, the same idea, the same metaphor. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the same metaphor, it's the same idea, it's the same image. That word for easy that Jesus uses in Greek can also be defined as kind and gracious. My yoke is easy, it's, it's kind, it's gracious. You see, we are all, each of us, offered these two options in life, aren't we? We're offered two ways in which we can live. We have the religious option with a heavy and cumbersome load. And we have Jesus' option. And the Apostle Paul writes the letter to the Galatians because he sees that these Galatians, who had been following Jesus' option, he sees them reverting to religion. He sees them reverting to the religious option. He writes this in Galatians chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul uses that word freedom as both the noun and the verb, as both the means and the end of the Christian life. What are we? We are free. And why are we free? For freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. See, in the first century, a yoke was a common sight, uh, like people standing around staring at their iPhones is today. You see, a yoke on oxen everywhere you look. Oxen were seen harnessed and weighed down by a yoke, straining to pull a heavy load while being poked and prodded with sharp sticks. Now, this was such a regular sight that it became a common metaphor for the law. It became a kind of way that the religious uh, uh, authorities and the rabbis would talk about living out their faith. Rabbis would speak about the yoke of the law. It was a crushing reminder of commandments we couldn't keep. It was a reminder of the curse that we deserved for our disobedience, the yoke of the law. And this is what Jesus is alluding to in Matthew chapter 23. 
in the final week of his life, this is why Jesus says, look at those Pharisees, look at those teachers of the law, look at those priests who, who have a heavy burden, and they pile that heavy burden on other people, but they're unwilling to lift a finger. But Paul says, listen, you don't have to be loaded down any longer. In fact, he uses a military term in that verse. He says, straighten up, stand up, stand at attention. You no longer need to be loaded down. No, Jesus has removed the yoke. He has removed the weight. He has removed the burden so we can stand up straight. I feel like an amen might be in order. Anybody? Anybody? Come on. Come on. Mark my words. He's getting a little bit fiery, isn't he? Mark my words. I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Paul says, this is no cafeteria where you get to pick and choose. This minor surgery has major implications. Succumbing to one ritual means that you have to follow all the rules and regulations. The whole yoke. Now, we've seen this over and over. If you've been here over the past few weeks, you know Paul has said this same thing six different ways. Six different times, he's given six different ways of understanding why this is such a terrible way to live. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, um, that's a familiar phrase. We hear that from time to time, don't we? This is where we get that phrase, the fall from grace. This is a phrase that gets used when uh, politicians or pop stars or sports celebrities do something stupid and then they get found out, right? What do we say? Oh, well, they've had a little fall from grace. <laughs> Dictionary defines it as a descent from divine favor into sin. But is that what Paul is talking about here? It is not. Paul is not talking about a, a descent from favor into sin. Paul is talking about a, a, a descent from grace into proving ourselves by always trying to do what's right. From relying on God's promise to instead relying on our performance. Declaring to God that we no longer need his grace. That's what he means by a fall from grace. But by faith, instead, he says, but by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? That's quite a verse. But by faith, we eagerly await. In other words, we don't yet have it, and we can't quite get it, but the Spirit will bring about this righteousness, this whole new life for which we are yearning. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Which might puzzle us for a moment, because he's been talking about it a lot, doesn't he? But his point is that there's no moral exertion, no, nor moral failure. Neither religion nor irreligion. No, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I think we've got it next year. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race, but who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. In other words, that's not coming from God. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. 
Now remember, in the scriptures, yeast is a bad thing. It's a symbol for sin, for evil. Um, don't be offended, bakers. Um, remember at the Passover, they were not to allow any leaven into their homes, right? Paul is saying that, that someone has introduced an idea into the kitchen of God's family, and it has taken over. And the yeast has found its way into all of the recipes where it should not be and does not belong. I am confident, I am confident in the Lord, that you will take no other view. The one who's throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, that is, uh, if I'm still preaching that you have to follow all the rites and rituals and rules and regulations of the law, then why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. <clears throat> As we've said before, if you think the Bible is boring, you have not read these verses. If you're curious about this, you can talk to Pastor Brian. He has office hours all week. I'll just say very briefly, I'll just say very briefly, this is highly ironic language, right? Paul is trying to make a point, and he's making it with a very sort of graphic imagery. This is highly ironic, but Paul is trying to say that he wishes the Galatian agitators, the one who are introducing the yeast that is spoiling everything in the kitchen, he's wishing that they would be cut off from God's people. He's saying, I wish their ability to reproduce others like themselves would be taken away. He's saying, I would like for those people to no longer be at your church. There is no longer a place for them. They are spoiling all of the recipes in the kitchen. you got to get rid of them. N.T. Wright says that these verses, the, the passage that we've just looked at, is like traveling on a long-haul flight. And when you land in a new country, in a new time zone, uh, you're jet-lagged, but you're wide awake. Ever had that experience before, right? And so what do you do? Well, you, you, you try to lie down and get some sleep in the hotel room, but it, it's just a strange new place. And so you, you grab the remote control, and you're flipping the channels, and you've got a, a sporting game on, on one channel and, and cable access and local news. You've got a late night infomercial and a talk show. And, and you sit there in this strange hotel room at, at, at a completely different time zone. They're speaking a different language and you're just flipping the channels one after another after another. And you're jet lagged but you're wide awake. Your desire to try to get some sleep is being made worse. You see, in these verses, Paul gives multiple different metaphors to try to prove his one point, like flipping through those different channels in a foreign language. Paul goes from the yoke to, to the military to yeast in the kitchen, but his point is this. His point is to say there's a new season in the history of God's people, both how we practice our faith and how we preach our faith has changed. You might not think about it this way, but we all practice something, don't we? And we all preach something. You might not think of it that way, but we all practice and we all preach. And the first six verses, if you've got your Bibles open, you'll notice the first six verses are about how we practice faith in Jesus. And then the last six verses are how we preach this faith in Jesus. First part is about the yoke that we wear. The second part is about the yoke that we tell everyone else about. And the Galatians had confused one yoke for the other. They had confused the yoke of the law with the yoke of Jesus. The Galatians had confused religion for the gospel. 
But the two could not be more different. Now, what unites these two parts, there's what we practice and then there's what we preach. What unites these two parts is another metaphor, another channel you're flipping in that foreign language in that hotel room. But this one invites us to set, set the remote control down. I think this is the image that Paul really wants to drive home for us in the text this morning. In a culture familiar with the Olympic Games, Paul often describes the Christian life as a race, doesn't he? We, we've seen this before. Early in Galatians, we read this. I wanted to be sure that I was not running, and I had not been running my race in vain, right? So, so the race of the Christian faith is kind of, there's an individual component to it where we need to, to do our very best to run this race. In, to the Corinthians, he writes it a little bit differently. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. So uh, the metaphor is extended a little bit. It's not us running a race by ourselves. Apparently, there's others around us, right? Well, in Hebrews, he takes it even further. He says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So he starts by talking about a race as this individual thing where we have to put forth some effort. And then he says, but remember, there's other people around you running this race. And now it's extended even further that those who've run this race before us are all around, cheering us on, encouraging us to run this race of faith. But notice how he uses the metaphor in Galatians chapter 5. Notice what he says. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? In other words, you had the yoke of Jesus around your neck. That yoke that, that, that's, that's light, that's easy, that's kind, that's gracious. But now you've been weighed down with all these rules and regulations. How can you run like that? You're not running that race anymore. It's this statement, it's this question that unites the two sections about practicing our faith and, and preaching our faith. You were wearing Jesus' yoke, but now you've reverted to religion. And you were telling people about this easy yoke, this kind yoke, this gracious yoke, but no, now you're, you're weighed down. And friends, this is of incredible importance. If you are weary and weighed down, then that is what you'll invite others to. Uh, if life is all about the rituals and the rules and regulations, then that is what you will share with the world. The life that we live is the life that we invite others to emulate. Now, I grew up in a running family. My dad was a long-distance runner and a long-distance coach. And so, um, my brother and I were long-distance runners as well, <laughs> if we wanted to eat dinner. <laughs> now, this worked out pretty well for me because I wasn't, shall we say, coordinated my brother, very coordinated. He could play and excel at any sport he wanted to, especially soccer. My brother, my older brother Jeff, three years older than me, he could run up the left side of any soccer field and just in and out of defenders and hook the ball right into the goal. It was a thing of beauty. But me, not so much. Anytime there was a, a ball sort of required or, or a bat, um, you know, uh, some sort of coordination, it wasn't me. 
Jeff could get in and out of those soccer defenders uh, as if they were like the foosball men who were stuck on the pole. <laughs> and I would just watch in amazement from the sidelines. So for me, running worked out pretty well because I don't know if you know how running works, just to, be, just to make sure we're all on the same page. I want to make really clear. Um, in running, here's what you do. You start like, like this, right? And then whatever leg is in the back, make sure you can see me. I want to make sure we're clear. Um, whatever leg is back here, can you see me, Susie? You, you take that leg and then you put it in front of the other one, okay? No, 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 that's only the first step, okay? After that, look, the other leg is back there. And so what do you need to do? Same deal, right? That's, all, that's what you do, you just run. You just, it's, it's kind of like jogging. I believe it's a, it's a soft J, right? Um, so you just kind of run. And sometimes your arms can help you run one leg after another. And if you do it quicker than other people, you win the race. It's incredible. Very little coordination needed. There's no ball to shoot. There's no puck to pass. There's no net to kick the ball into. You just run. But there are sometimes, if you're not too far in the back, sometimes there are other runners. There are other runners. Whether you're on a cross-country trail or you're on a quarter-mile track, there happen to be other people who are also picking up their legs and trying to put them in front of the other as quickly as they can as well. And sometimes those legs hit your legs and, and sometimes their arms hit your arms or, or even your ribs. And in a competitive race, it is not uncommon to be running a good race until someone cuts in on you. You've seen this happen in the Olympics all the time. They're jostling with their elbows they're kicking high their knees. We saw it happen this summer during the first stage of the Tour de France. Do you remember that massive pileup? Because someone stepped out to cheer along but got in the way. And that's the image that Paul has in mind. That's what unites the practice of our faith and the preaching of our faith. It's all about how we run the race and who we allow to get in our way, to cut us off. That's what Paul envisions as their fall from grace. That's why Paul wants some people in the church to be cut off from the rest of God's people. No longer show up. We don't want you here anymore. You are like yeast in the kitchen. Someone has cut in on them. Someone has taken their easy and kind and gracious yoke and replaced it with something heavier, something much more religious. They've reverted to those rules and the regulations. And there's a profound difference between the religion and gospel. There's a profound difference between religion about Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Think about it. Religion says, if I obey, well, then I'm accepted. If I go to church enough, if I pray enough, if I give enough, well, then, then God will love me, right? That's religion. The gospel says, I am accepted through Jesus Christ, and so I can obey. I am accepted and welcomed and loved more than I could ever dream. And so, as a result, I can go to church and give and pray. See, religion motivates us by, by fear and insecurity. The gospel motivates us by gratitude and joy. Religion tells us that if we obey God, we'll get things from God. The gospel says that we obey God in order to get God. Religion tells us we need to pray when things go wrong in our life. 
and we pray in order to get control back and tell God what he needs to do for us. The gospel tells us, no, we, we get to pray just for fellowship and intimacy with God himself. In religion, our identity and our self-worth are based on how hard we work and how moral we are, which allows us to look down on others who don't have it all figured out, when they don't behave the way we do, when they don't vote the way that we do, when they don't look like we do, when they don't drive the car we do or live in the neighborhood that we do. It's very religious, all of those things. But the gospel, in the gospel, our identity and our self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, which included us. Which means that the grace we've received, we can share with others, even when they're different from us, especially when they're different from us. So let me ask it this way. What race are you running? And are you running it alone? Are there any obstacles in your way? Has anyone cut in on you? The story's been told from America's Civil War days, just before the Emancipation Proclamation freed those in slavery. As the story goes, there was a northerner who traveled to a slave auction and purchased a young girl, a young slave girl. After his purchase, they walked from the auction, and the man turned to the girl and said to her, now you're free. She was completely amazed, and she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. Can I be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. And can I go wherever I want to go? Yes, you can go wherever you want to go. You, you're free to go wherever you like. And she looked at him intently, and she said, well, then I'll go with you. See, this is the promise of the gospel. That Jesus... The true northerner has come down, not from another state, but from the heights of heaven. He's come down to purchase our freedom. And we are free to do, we are free to say, we are free to be whatever we want. We are free to go wherever we want to go. May we go with him. May we be like him. May we do the things he's called us to do and say the things he's called us to say. For his yoke is easy. It is kind. It is gracious. May we invite others to this Jesus, to this easy and kind and gracious yoke. For the world is filled with pileups, isn't it? The world is filled with things that will get in our way, obstacles that will stand before us and our Savior. The world is filled with obstacles. And, and the world will place upon us a heavy burden everywhere we look. Some way or another that we are to prove ourselves. Some other religious concept, some other way that we are lesser and we have to be made more. We have to somehow prove ourselves. Jesus says, that's not gospel. That's just more religion. It's a heavy burden. It's an obstacle. May we, Good Shepherd, may we be and even more so become a church that points one another to the grace of the gospel.
No more religion. Just Jesus. Jesus.